Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the Eco Wild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. People of the South and everywhere else who's uh, who's listening across the country, I know we got some New Yorkers and some people in Illinois and some people out West. How y'all doing? Hope you had a good weekend. Uh, we have on the phone someone who has a ridiculous amount of antler on the ground, uh, Mr. Ben Allen. Ben, how are you doing? I'm good. Good. Pretty good, too. Jacob, how are you? Man, I'm doing excellent. Ben, I'm, I'm excited for us to be able to have this conversation. It's been, it feels like almost a year in the in the making. Now, I feel like I've said that quite a bit lately with some of our guests. Um, but I'm very interested to talk to you in, just because your background hunting public land, you've been extremely successful. But I, I really want to start this out and just get right to the, the meat and potatoes of everything. What makes you successful hunting public land? So for me, it's uh it's putting in the work. I, I put in a lot of effort throughout the year, not just during hunting season, um, trying to pattern deer, try to locate areas, try to find as many good areas as I can and try to find the areas that I don't think other hunters are putting in the effort to get to. I'm looking for this place that I don't think anyone else is going to want to work to get to, or if they work to get to, they're not wanting to work, put in the work to get a deer out of. I want to, I want to go where I don't think anyone else is going and I'm finding the low pressure animals. Excellent. Excellent. And like you said, uh, I know you said this earlier and we'll kind of get into this. It's not always the farthest place from the truck. It's sometimes it's whatever obstacle between you and where that deer could be is the one thing that's keeping people from getting there, um, which we're about to get down that rabbit hole. But I want now, since people kind of heard your, <laughs> heard what makes you successful and we're about to piece that apart, I would like to kind of jump into uh, a little bit more about yourself, how you got into public land hunting and some of these states you've lived in in the last few years. Because one thing we haven't talked about, you're in the military, uh, you're in the army and you travel, uh, seems quite a bit, uh, with the army through different states. So you've hunted quite a few states and had a lot of success in those states. So let's kind of go into that. What is, uh, you know, how did you get into public land hunting and how did you start applying these tactics to start working for you? So I, that's how I grew up hunting. I grew up in, uh, East Texas in the Piney Woods National Forest. And, uh, my dad was never a lease hunter or private land hunter. He, he introduced me into public land hunting. And uh, he kind of introduced me with the mentality of going deep and getting away from the other hunters. And then uh, as I continued to hunt, especially once I joined the military, I never really had that uh, that ability to commit to a lease or anything because I was constantly moving. Once I found a good lease or was able to get on it, I never knew I was going to be here for hunting season or not. I might be in another state training or overseas. So it was just a safe bet to plan on hunting public land or when I got a chance to hit the public land wherever I was at. But now it's, to me, it's kind of a pride thing. I like the idea of being able to tell people I took good deer off public land. Well, perfect. Well, let's kind of jump right into the the aspect of what you mentioned earlier about what makes you successful uh, and, and kind of some of that harder to access uh, stuff. When did that first click? When did that really click for you? Was it with your dad or, or when did that click that, Hey, you know, sometimes it's not always about going as deep. It's sometimes it's finding that obstacle that's keeping people from getting back there. 
when I was younger, I, uh, when I say younger, 16, I first started hunting on my own, got my driver license. And one of the first things I noticed was a, I've been used to hunting deep woods, but I found a place that was archery only in an area where not a lot of archery hunters were. Mostly everyone wanted a gun hunt. So I sacrificed my gun season to hunt these archery only areas because these deer were using it as a safe haven to get away from the high pressured areas around it. And it really improved my odds. I noticed there was lack of uh, less hunters there for me to compete with or to interfere with my hunting on top of the deer was low, lower pressured or they were easier to work around. I didn't seem like the deer was picking up on what I was doing as quick and as easy. Interesting. So you kind of started out trying to find some of those properties, like you said, like with that property that had just less pressure, just because for some people they think of it as limited opportunity. Cause there's a lot of guys, same thing around here uh, in, in the Southeast. Um, you know, if you have an archery only area now, it's getting more and more popular, but you know, come gun season, a lot of that pressure really dies off and a lot of guys just aren't getting out there. So that's kind of interesting on that aspect. Now, when did you start applying kind of the whole aspect of, uh, you know, hard to access when you started finding maybe some places that had more pressure? I mean, from the get go, I did is, uh, is getting to places before technology was a big thing. You didn't have a GPS or a cell phone in your hand in the woods, getting to places most people were scared to get to because they was worried about getting lost deep river bottoms, deep creek bottoms. But also I started figuring out that if I put in the physical effort to get away from the other hunters two or three miles down, that I saw a lot more bigger bucks, um, a lot more mature, mature bucks where I might hunt some of the, the, the closer, easier to get to places for weeks, just see a spike or a four point or a doe. And I would go into a deep area and see numerous good deer within one or two sets. Now, kind of, I want to pick this apart a little bit more. Can you go into like a, a specific buck that you've killed, like in maybe some kind of unique situation where there was difficult access and kind of give us that story and then we'll branch off of that. One of the first ones that's significant to me is, uh, I had found this particular location in, uh, East Texas is in national forest. And, uh, it, it was a place I was able to identify what I consider a community scrape, just a, a good scrape, a big ground scrape that numerous bucks have been working. And I put a camera on it and I kind of kept a camera on it all through that season and through the summer and the next season. Within the next season, I noticed I had six or seven big bucks coming to this scrape on a regular basis. I mean, East Texas or National Forest, we're talking about 120-inch, 115, 130-inch deer, and all these six or seven bucks were in that profile. And that's a trophy animal in that area, in my opinion. Well, I mean, I put a little bit of time in that, that area that next season, and within – one or two hunts i had at the time second biggest buck of my life down and now it really started showing the payoff for me then and i just kind of kept reapplying that same tactic everywhere as i went very cool so yeah i gotta go down this rabbit hole so last year uh mark turner he's a he's a host of hunt the land podcast and also a very good friend of mine we hunted together a lot and we had this one place where we found a community scrape and we just did a giant podcast on community scrapes, so they're like real fresh on my mind. But last year we found this community scrape, and we had like 11 different mature bucks on it over the course of a month and a half or so, right around the rut where we were. Um, and a lot of them were like real nice bucks. Uh, some of them were kind of dinky, but I mean, they were all like mature bucks. There's 11 of them. So I've been wondering about, you know, community scrapes and annual patterns around scrapes. So I got to ask, when you when you went in there and killed a buck near that scrape, I mean, was the scraping activity very similar from year to year? Like, uh, were the deer doing the same thing 
on that scrape within like a, a few days span of, of the date that they had done it the year before? So in my experience, and this is a very controversial topic across the hunting world, but uh, I, I start seeing these deer work these scrapes around certain moon phases. And I'm a big moon hunter. And I know it's a huge controversy in the hunting world, but usually that second full moon of the fall, a couple of weeks prior to it, is when I start seeing these scrapes open up. Whether that falls in late November, the second full moon, or, or not late November, but mid-November, or late October. And that's usually when I want to start looking at these places, is when I start thinking that these scrapes are going to open up. A couple of weeks prior to that second full moon. And for example, this year, it's going to fall in late October. So about mid-October is when I'm going to start watching these areas and putting my hunts on, or my focus on hunting these spots. Mm-hmm. When you were in there, were you getting on a lot of the same bucks, like around that scrape or in that general area? I mean, were you hunting those same deer from the year before? Yes, I was. There was deer that I was patterning up. I got pictures of multiple years in uh, in a row, and I kind of already started labeling names to just based off characteristics on the deer and stuff. And I know some people ain't big on naming deer, but it was my way of identifying bucks to the other people that hunted the area with me, family, and so on. Mm-hmm. And uh, keep them straight. Yeah, and of course you get hopes on certain ones and so on. Yeah, absolutely. So the deer in that area, were you able to pick up like a like a real consistent pattern on those deer? Well, hold on. First, I want to ask the deer in that area because it was a hard to hard to reach area. Were they acting like vastly different than deer in other areas that might be easier to reach? And what were those patterns like? One of the significant difference I seen was the daytime movement. I saw a lot of daytime movement. Um, I see a lot of midday movement on them, especially on certain phases. Uh, and I mean, this particular story I was talking about, the buck I killed him at about 1130 midday. And I'd probably got in my blind at about 1050. And not that I was planning on it being that close, but I was planning a midday hunt and had a midday success on him. So were there anything, was there anything that those bucks were, well, you know, I'll ask this. What's the cover like there? Like what's the vegetation kind of stuff? Like what are you hunting in that area? What's it, what's it look like? So I like to hunt hardwoods down south and, uh, which is pretty much everything we got. We got pine woods and got hardwoods and, uh, I, I get away from the pines. I don't like hunting them. I hit hardwoods. But I try to find hardwoods a lot of uh, stem count under, a lot of scr- uh, scrub brush. And particularly scrub brush, I know they're going to graze on. Uh, this particular area, we had a lot of wild yopon-style bu- uh, bushes, mm-hmm. and the deer like to graze on it. On top of that, there was a lot of like lower grasses, green grasses that laid in this area, this bottom, and then a lot of oak trees. The oak trees will pull them in during the right time of year, but it won't keep them year-round, where this brush – they can graze on through the summer. They can graze on late season, especially them green grasses that are growing in there. And another thing that's significant in this area is not far away was some private land that had a lot of cattle pasture, which gave the deer a lot of a lot of green graze, especially late season, December, uh, January, February, towards the end of season or after season. Mm-hmm. And it helped keep them deer there year-round, not just during hunting season when the acorns are dropping or when there's does running the area. Would you say that your main focus is bedding or food? My main focus isn't, I'd say probably closer to bedding. Um, I like to find a good food source. I like to find a good bedding, but I don't really like getting into either of them. I found it, in my experience, a lot of the deer on the food sources are at nighttime. And if you get too much into beddings, you really disturb the deer and mess them up. 
So I try to find good transition points between them where I can ease in and get into a good set without disturbing the area. What's that transition point look like for you? Like, are you, are you just kind of, are you like trying to identify like here's food, here's bedding and just get in the middle? Or is there a certain kind of feature that you're looking for? Like maybe, maybe a habitat edge or a funnel or something like that. So for me, it, it's a lot different here where I'm at right now. So I'm kind of talking about my Southern tactics, mm-hmm. but uh, it's a lot of getting into uh, high stem count, tall timber. So if I find oaks, it has a lot of brush under it and I get on the edge of it. I mean, obviously if I beat my way into the middle of it, I'm going to make a lot of racket, especially going in in the morning before da- uh, daylight. It's going to create a lot of disturbance in the area. So I like to get just on the edge of that. And I found a lot of these deer will get up and move early just on the edge of that in the evenings and give you daytime visual uh, looks at big bucks or they'll come into it right after uh, sunrise in the mornings and give you early morning looks at big bucks. But I found that a lot of times they'll get up and move in that cover midday or throughout the day when they normally be bedded in there and give me some good looks in the middle of the day. And I mean, a lot of this don't depend on my camera feedback of when I'm going to try to hunt it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, I got to ask now, I, I want to get more into what this cover looks like. So you're talking about tall hardwoods that maybe have been thinned or maybe they're just, they're not real crowded. And so you've got a nice, nice underbrush underneath them. So, and you might have a bunch of hardwood stems. Are there briars and stuff in there or are you looking for vines or is it just like saplings? No, sometimes there'll be a lot of briars and stuff. Usually that's going to restrict yours and the deer's movement a lot. A lot of the time, uh, some of the places I like to hunt over in East Texas had a lot of switch cane in there. A lot of that, uh, I don't know, six to 10 foot tall cane that's growing and they're, they're mostly Creek bottoms. These are places that probably have never been touched with co- timber companies, uh, or anything like that. Cause it's, it's in a protected area. It's a Creek bottom or river bottom. Uh, it's kind of the same in Louisiana when I was hunting over there, it was a lot of palmetto flats in the model, these Oak bottoms and you get the pal- palmettos and other brush in there. It kind of gives the deer cover and feel, feel like they're not in the wide open even though in the woods mm-hmm. is there like a, a steadfast rule that can that you can use to kind of identify like if somebody's listening to this it might be hard to visualize it but is there like a like if i walk up to this cover and i can't see past 20 yards it's good is there some kind of rule like that you follow not really I, it's hard to say i mean if i walk into a bottom and it's i can see across this sun gun uh 50 60 yards then it's pretty open and you're probably not going to see a lot of mature deer moving daylight in that, not outside of the rut or something that's going to have them moving abnormally. But uh, if you've got a lot of cover in there and you can, I, I would say probably that general rule of thumb you just brought up where you see 10, 20 yards. And after that, it's kind of restricted. The animals are going to feel a lot more comfortable in that, mm-hmm. but it, it's not necessarily something I've applied before. It's, it's more just once I get in there and I see something, it looks like there's enough cover is make these animals feel comfortable if i'm finding a lot of bedding areas nearby uh so on i don't really want to be where i'm finding the bedding areas i want to be off of it a little bit mm-hmm. okay the, the reason i asked that is because around here we've kind of noticed for some reason anywhere where it's real thick and there's like vines growing like muscadines or other just random vines it seems like it always holds buck i don't know bucks i don't know what it is about it but it's like if it's thick and there's vines we find bucks there so that that's interesting um one thing i got to ask is is there any way that you're identifying these these thickets on a map is there anything that 
that you can look for on like a satellite image and know that it's going to be thick or are you just having to go and bust brush to find them? So I, the first thing I look at on satellite imagery is the hardwood bottoms. And, uh, and like I said before, I kind of try to stay away from the pines and you can look at the satellite imagery and kind of figure out the difference between a hardwood and pines pretty easy. But once I get in there, that's when I really identify these areas. Sometimes I can identify some on a map and you can see, depending on when the satellite imagery is taken, if you're on Google Earth, you can play with it a little bit and change the seasons and or the timeline and see different seasons. You can kind of see through the foliage and, uh, and get a little bit of idea what's on the ground. And then also I have, luckily I have access to a few systems being military that allows me to see a little bit more in depth in typical Google Earth and, uh, onyx and so on but uh I'll, I'll try to identify these spots as much as i can and find what i call points of interest before i go in just places i want to try to hit and identify but most of it's by footwork once i get in there on ground i bounce from points of interest points of interest then i that's when i really start marking it on my onyx or whatever app i'm using and identifying what i like in that area all right, Ben, we got we got to go. To, we got to hit that. Your points of interest. So if you're looking, I want to kind of take this back from step one. Then we're going to get right back into uh, kind of like the hard axis and kind of really what makes you successful. But we're kind of breaking down the steps of you know what you're doing before you dive into a spot. So Andrew just brought up like aerial scouting, looking at maps and kind of figuring out areas before you dive into it. Let, let's look at that again from a different perspective. When you're looking at that, you know Andrew was talking about like the thick cover. When you're looking at the map, what are you looking for for like hard access or places that probably would have less pressure? What tells you that on a map and maybe kind of give us a couple examples? So the first and easiest thing I look at is I start getting some kind of measuring tool and I start measuring how far it is from the nearest access, nearest public access, should I say, the road. And uh, if I can measure that something out to two miles or more, I get pretty excited about it. But then I start looking at other things like is there going to be people coming in by water or by river is there other access to it is there uh, a spot that i think people can overlook just because it's a small little area tucked in some private land and no one ever thinks about hitting this area because there's a whole bunch of private land around it it's just a small chunk off the road i start trying to look for these kind of places so you're trying to find these different things, like you're saying, you know, getting really far from the road or just these subtle kind of overlooked spots that might be, like you said, tucked up against a private or just tucked up by itself, kind of away from the bigger chunks of public. Uh, and that's kind of one way you're getting away from guys. And we've had other guys on the show as well that have done the same thing and find, you know, little pieces of public that, you know, either just aren't marked super well, like you see them on X and there might be a couple signs, but they're not very defined. Um, or sometimes even on paper maps are so small, they might not even put them on the paper map, uh, which I've heard quite often from a lot of people uh, that also get verified by like a conservation officer or game warden that, that yes, that is public. Um, but so you're looking for these places that again, kind of like points of interest, things on the map that you think you can get away from somebody. Okay. Now let me ask, do you have experience hunting some public land that is fairly roaded up. And where I'm trying to get at with that is down here in central Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, a lot of this area is timber company. So there is timber cuts everywhere and they have fantastic road systems everywhere. And it truly is hard in some places to get more than a mile and a half from an access point. So do you have any experience hunting anything like that? So one of my places in the South I had the most success on is Fort Polk, Louisiana. And it's a big chunk of private land there that, 
no matter who you are, military or not, you can get access to it and hunt it. And Fort Polk is that way, whether it's roads from timber companies coming in or roads that the military's put in for the training in the training areas. And there's very few chunks there that's more than a mile away from a road. But I found that there's, there's uh brush or other barriers they'll create a, uh, a boundary that people don't want to pass. And then uh, another thing is unique to military installations. I would play the fence line and how the fences lie and, and so on. And I actually got real lucky there and found one little chunk that's fenced off all the way around and it's legal hunting ground, but you pretty much got to find a way to cross the fence in order to get to it. And, I actually quit hunting the place and is using the place to introduce new hunters just because the deer in there in that area were so low pressure that it was almost too easy to hunt. But it was, I, I, I use this as a good introduction for people that was getting into hunting and wanted to have success. So in those areas that, you know, are fairly roaded up, you know, you're trying to find those spots that – uh, maybe just there's some barrier to entry on those. You know, there's some barrier or something that doesn't make it super easy to kind of hop into. Is that correct? Yes. Gotcha. So yeah, let's go, I want to go over types of barriers. What are some of those barriers like? So it, I don't remember the type of the bush's name, but uh, there was a, a lot of the creek bottoms at Fort Polk were good open oak bottoms that had the, the palmettos under it and scrub brush. But on each side of that, was a real thick brush that is just a pain to get through. And once you got through it, I mean, you might move 50 to a hundred yards through this mess that before you got into these bottoms. But once you got through it, you typically got away from the other hunters. We're on the outside of these bottoms on the, before you got in that brush, you're in like open pines with like almost CRP grass under it. Cause timber company company managed. They had controlled burns and they came in there to make sure that the trees were open and a lot of people hunted these areas. And there's a lot of deer that moved across these areas, but a lot of nighttime movement on them. But once you punch through all this brush and got into these oaks and these these hardwoods and these creek bottoms, that's where you started finding day movers, the, the daytime moving mature animals. And you was getting away. I, most of the time I was away from other hunters. Very rarely did I bump into other hunters or signs of other hunters, whether it's tack trails, ribbon trails, or leftover stands in those areas. So let me ask you, what, what gets you excited when you're looking at a piece of public on the map? What is, I mean, you, you talk about if you can find a place two miles or more, that gets you excited. What's a couple other things when looking at a map that gets you excited that, hey, I probably can get away from some people? If I can find a couple different terrain features in that particular area and say like there's a small opening with some hardwoods around it, there's uh, some good good open grass sources out there that these deer are going to want to feed in at night or uh, – even during the day, if there's low enough pressure there, if I can find multiple different types of terrain in there and it's a d- good distance away from people and there's a solid water source nearby, a creek is going to hold water throughout the summer or a river or a solid slough or pond. Those are, when you combine all that together, it's a, it's a point that before I ever hit ground, I'm excited about. I'm, I'm anxious to see what it is when I get there. So one thing I'm wondering about is, when you when you find one of these areas, like let's say you find something on a map that looks good, you punch in there and you got some barriers between you, like you got to walk through a thicket and then cross a creek, and you get back to the spot. What on the ground? What has to be on the ground at that spot to let you know that like, hey, I should hunt here? And then on the flip side, 
are there any red flags that you see when you're in there where you're like, hey, I might not need to focus on this so much? So for me, the red flags right away is just the human sign, whether it's other hunter sign or whatever. But the the major things I look for is huge deer travel. And uh, I'm a big fan of doing observation hunts my first move in. My first time in the area, if I have a point of interest and I get in there and I, I'm set up to hunt it, and I, I do this every year on a, a trip to Missouri. I do a week-long trip with buddies. And I get into a particular area where I can overwatch some CRP. And I'll get up in a tree, and I just kind of overwatch a couple hundred yards in a couple different directions and try to pattern where deer are coming out or moving and how they're doing. Now, this is more of an early season tactic when the deer are going to repeat themselves day to day unless there's a uh, something that, that messes them up, whether it's my interference or another predator or human or whatever. Uh, I, I try to get an observation hunt, try to pattern these critters or these deer, and then I'll come back in with the mindset of hitting that spot the next morning or next evening and making a kill. Okay, so on, when it comes to, like, you know, obviously you want to see deer on your observation set, but let's say you don't have time to do an ob- observation set. Are you looking for, like, just tracks? Are you looking for heavy trails? Are you looking for buck sign? What's that look like for you? I'm going to look for heavy travel areas with lots of lots of heavy or big tracks in them. Um, I'm not much of a scrape or a rub hunter. I will get on them if I find enough sign near them, but it's the, the other sign in the area I'm looking for. If I am find a lot of tracks, especially a lot of done, a lot of deer droppings, if I can find a lot of deer droppings in an area, that gets me excited over anything just because I know that these deer are holding there a lot. They may be bedding, getting up, moving around through the day, or feeding there uh, for a prolonged amount of time, but they're they're holding there a lot. Where mm-hmm. if it's just a trail or a path, I will eventually settle for that if I don't find anything else. But I'm looking for pretty spread out tracks in a in a in a small area with a high density of tracks and a lot of droppings. And then I'm also looking at the top of these brushes and stuff. He's and seeing clippings if the deer's grazing if they're clipping off of it. So one of Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. One of the particular ones I look for here in the Midwest, and it's not so much for the South, is we have these little stinging metal things that's about knee high. And uh, I found that deer clip the top of them like crazy. And if I get into an area where I see every one of them guns are clipped off on top, that's one of the places I'm setting up or I'm looking to – I'm excited about. Now, are, are you setting up straight on that food source, or are you going to move kind of closer to where you think they're bedding, uh, like in an effort to, you know, catch them before dark? A lot of it's going to depend on just the winds and thermals in the area and how it's moving, but I'm going to set up – most of the time, these are bedding in these food sources because they're, they're thick, brush, deep areas. And I'm going to just set up where I, I think there's a high amount of deer travel in that area. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's one thing that we like to ask people is, you know, getting, getting into like daylight movement, you know, uh, like one thing that we typically ask is in your area, in the areas we're talking about, you know, East Texas, Louisiana, maybe Missouri, where do the deer like to hang? Like, where do they feel safe? Where do they want to hang out during daylight hours? Um, for the most part. For me, it's definitely tall timber with lots of uh, underbrush under it. Um, I don't like being in tall timber with nothing under it. I don't like being in open fields. I don't mind if it's CRP. If I'm on a, a field that has some five, six-foot-tall grasses, I don't mind being in it. 
And that was actually one of my sessions last year on a Missouri hunt. I got out there and we had a real high wind and I sat down in this, I actually climbed a tree on the edge of this field and the wind was blowing me around pretty good and decided it just wasn't a place I wanted to be that evening. And uh, so I move out in the CRP and I actually brushed down and pushed down some area where I just have probably about a six foot by six foot section there to set in and move around. And this every now and then I can peek up over to CRP and look across it and maybe see the, see some animals in it. And it was actually a really early evening hunt. It was probably two, two thirty when I had gotten set. And within 30, 40 minutes of setting there, I had a 125 inch eight point come by me. And when I first seen him, he was about 60 yards, but luckily with really strong winds, tall grass, a lot of motion, made for a really easy stock. I was able to get just under 40 yards of the deer, probably 37, 38 yards. I was trying to range through grass and getting an accurate range is difficult. But I was able to use that wind, all that motion is to my advantage, get a good stock in on this animal and this tall grass and get a good shot off on him. And halfway through my hunt had a, for that kind of hunt, what I consider a trophy caliber animal. Very cool. That's awesome, man. So, I mean, one thing that I'm getting from all this is that, you know, like I, when I ask about food and bedding, like it's really the same thing. So, I mean, the, the cover, you know, that they're feeding in is also kind of what they're bedding in. But let me ask, what what would separate the bedding from the food within that good cover that you're talking about? Like, are they bedding on a terrain feature? Or are there certain things that they like to bed on? So if you're walking in, you know how to avoid bumping those deer? Yeah, in certain areas I see it's different. I never really got it locked down down south. Uh, the deer down there seem to be a little bit more scarce on their uh, patterns. But here in Kansas and over in Missouri, I found that there's certain types of brush that they tend to get under and feel comfortable under. And we have a, a real big leaf bush, and it normally only grows no more than about 10 feet tall in these open areas, these CRP areas. And I found a lot of times these bucks like to bed in under that. And, I mean, I've had a couple just scared the crap out of me a couple of times because I about stepped on them before they jumped up and took off running before I learned this lesson. And mm -hmm. I just really keyed in on making sure I stay away from these certain ones that tend to be repeat bed areas. And even in uh, some of the more taller timber stuff, I found there's there's a certain bush that these, these bucks like to bed under. And it's a real broadleaf bush. It locks out a lot of sunlight. I think it creates a cool habitat for them to lay in it throughout the day. But also, once you get under it, it's pretty open in there. And they feel comfortable moving around. And when I say open in there, we're talking about a small area, like area of a, a normal-sized room in a house or something, not a big area. Like, once you look at it from outside, you're not seeing in it. But once you get in, you're, at most, you're talking about 5 to 10 yards across it. Would you happen to know what the name of that bush is? I do not. It's a, uh, it's a, it's, I, I really have to look it up. It's smaller, smaller leaf on the ones in the open areas. It's, uh, just real thick. The, uh, the ones that's in the, the standing timber, it's a real slick bark. It doesn't get more than about two or three inches across at the base. And it has a big broad leaf and the leaves tend to fall fairly early into, uh, October, maybe mid October. And then I notice a lot of times they'll move off of that. But I take advantage of the early season hunting here, and it plays to my advantage. Ben, 
what is something from your experience of hunting all these different public land parcels across the country, you know, a couple of these different states, what is like the, what is one lesson you've learned after doing this as long as you have? I don't know. I'd say to keep the water sources in mind, keep the hunting pressure in mind, try to find an area it's low pressure and to, uh, I guess to keep your hopes up, don't, don't get out there within two or three days and not success and let it get down on you. Um, if you're in an area and it's just not working for you, don't be scared to move. Don't be scared to bounce to another area. Don't continue to overhunt area. I have something I like to call my rule three, and it's just something I made up for myself. Other people may have something similar to it, but it's, if I'm hunting area and I'm seeing animals, I'm not being successful. I don't want to continue to educate them. I want to move on. If I'm hunting animals or area and I'm not seeing animals at all, then I just need to go ahead and move on and have a new game plan and go to another area. Or if I'm successful there, I don't want to overkill that area. I need to give up on it and move on also. So uh, I want to really pick apart the whole rule of three thing. So, I mean, can you just, can you go into it a little more like, uh, like if an area is like unproductive, you'll give it three sits or, or, I mean, how does that work for you? So if I'm seeing good sign there and everything looks good, but I'm just not seeing animals, I got to have that discipline not to glue to that area for the entirety of the hunt and waste my time on there. I'm going to go ahead and move on. Or if I am seeing animals, I'm getting busted or I'm not getting kills in, or there's just not the quality animals I want to shoot, then I need to move on to keep from educating them or find new animals. But uh, several of my hunts, there's what a good group or good sized group of people and we're on meat hunts. And we're looking to get a couple of does down also along with mature bucks. And uh, if we're killing two or three deer out of the same spot, we're going to overhunt that spot. And we plan on being there year after year if possible. And even if I don't plan on being there next year, I don't want to ruin it for the next guy. So I don't want to kill two, three does and a buck in the same tree or same little spot. So once I get one or two down, I want to move on and preserve that particular area and let it be beneficial the next year when I come back to that spot if it's able to happen. Okay, that makes sense. So let's say that you're on. You, let let's say you go into an area and you're really on the deer, and you got like a a nice buck in there that you've maybe seen, or maybe you've gotten pictures of him, and you know he's there. But you know you've used your three hunts and you haven't killed him, so you move on. Do you circle back to those areas? And if so, how long do you wait to circle back? So right away in that scenario, most of the time I don't use my three hunts back to back. I hit that area once, and then. I'll move on to another spot and come back within a couple weeks or whatever when I think the condition's right and hit that area again. Um, with this being said, I always try to identify numerous spots in the area. Uh, if I'm hunting a chunk of national forest, I try to identify easily six, seven, eight spots that I want to, that I feel comfortable I can go in and have a successful hunt. And maybe not from the same parking area, maybe different parking areas, and maybe from the same parking area, I just walk a different direction to get to them. Um, so, I mean, if I pull up to a place and there's someone there hunting, I already got a backup plan. I can go somewhere else. I know I have other spots. I feel comfortable. It's going to be good. But when I do uh, re-hit these areas, if it's back-to-back, which rarely happens, it's because I'm after numerous good bucks in there. I, I don't know how many times I have gave up the number one deer that I've seen on camera because in this other area or other spot, I have three or four really good bucks. And I'm looking for the spot that's going to be, give me the best odds, especially if I'm on a short hunt. Uh, 
So let me ask you this, Ben. When it comes to, and I don't know what your you know schedules like being in the military and with family and everything. I don't know how much you get to hunt, um, but you know, for a guy that has limited time, maybe the guy that can only hunt weekends. You know, what would you be doing? If, I don't know if that's the situation you're in, but if you only had a couple of days a week to hunt, how do you try to? How would you try to? You know, put everything in your favor to try to have success in a very short time frame like that. So. That- being military, there is years I don't get to hunt at all, and there's that years that it's to the opposite end where I'm heck if coronavirus spans out long enough, I'll be teleworking during hunting season. I can just make my teleconference from tree tree stand. But uh, given a normal year where I only got a couple of days a week, we'll say like most people Saturday and Sunday to hunt. But then I also got to balance that out with family time. I look for certain conditions to line up, and let's say we got a rainstorm that's setting in Friday night, but it's supposed to clear up by Saturday morning, then I want to be on that or stand when that rainstorm clears up. Or if we got a low pressure system set in all day Saturday, but moves out for Saturday or Sunday, I want to plan on hunting that Sunday with a high pressure system and plan on doing stuff with the family on that Sunday or whatever the case. It may be keeping me from hunting every chance I get or to go to the woods. I actually have a uh, kind of a system I go by, and I look for the pressure system. Is it low or high? The weather, did we just have some kind of significant weather that changed from bad hunting conditions to good hunting conditions? Is the moon rise, set, transit, or subtransit lining up with the sunset or rise? And for each one of these categories, I can give it like, uh, we'll say a star or a point. And if I can get like a two star and we'll say like there's a moon rise that lines up with a sunset or something like that, that'd be a two star. But then I get a good pressure system lines up with it. I give it a three star. And then I have a, a, uh, say it's been raining all day and the rain moved out or it's been heavy winds all day, which is real common here in Kansas. And then the winds die that evening. Then that gives me a four star. And then I'd say a fifth star would be like that unnormal thing, a feeder going off or here in Kansas, more so a harvest just happened. Something that really brings the animals into the area that might be unique to your area. Uh, for me, on military installations, there was a lot of movement in the mornings from human traffic going to work, whatever. So I didn't really like doing much morning hunts on military installations because of that. The deer got used to that being the norm. But if I can create a three, four-star day or even a five-star day, then that's when I'm going to try to be in a deer stand. And I might sacrifice the rest of my weekend to spend time with the wife and family or do events away from hunting just for me to have that one set, whether it's morning, evening, or even possibly a midday set and tree stand that weekend. So you're you're definitely more of like a quality over quantity when it comes to actually like your hunting time. So let me ask – what are some of the ideal weather conditions that you look for where you're like, this is going to be worth it? You know, uh, I start with a uh, high and low pressure systems. Cause that's still something that I don't quite understand to be honest. So I, I've really seen it when you have a high pressure system, deer move better than a low pressure system. Can you explain you have what, what those are? So the easiest way to just look at the weather app on your phone and see what the pressure is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, your pressure, barometric pressure may range from 29.5 or 6 or something like that being low to 30.45, possibly 30.6 being high. So for me, if it's above 30, 
I'm pretty happy with it. If it's 30.1 or 30.2, I'm pretty excited. If it's 30.4 or 5, I'm really excited. If it's uh, 29.4 or 29.6 or something like that, then I'm not as excited about that. Um, I'm not going to say that's in all, say all, but that's just – has been beneficial to me in the past. I've noticed the pressure has been higher when I've seen really good movement. The evenings I've been in the woods and there's been uh, a lot of deer activity compared to the evening prior where there wasn't, I've been able to link it to pressure. But the number one factor that I like to see is if there's been really bad weather for multiple days, whether it's windstorms that lasted the last two days and it's dying, or if it's been a, really heavy rain for a couple of days or all day. And then it's stopping at a certain point and our really heavy snow. And that snow is coming to the end at a certain point. That's when I want to be there. When that really bad weather ends and becomes good movement weather for white animal or white deer. That's when I want to be in the woods. I want to know a little bit more about your setups, you know, in a situation like that where you have a massive, you know, storm front pushing in, because I think that's pretty relatable across the country, no matter where you're at, big storm front gets pushed through uh, maybe mid-season, early season, uh, and you want to try to get out there, you know, right when that storm's starting to, you know, break up. What are you focusing on right then? I mean, are you, you know, are you thinking they're going to be hitting the food real hard? Are you, I mean, if you're trying to go for a mature buck, what are you trying to focus on right when that storm breaks up? It depends on, one, the time of year, and two, what kind of storm you're looking at. Um, one of my really big bucks I killed in Louisiana, uh, I was hunting a creek bottom, and it came in a heavy rain. And I seen in the forecast where it was going to be a heavy rain pretty much all morning for two or three hours, and then it was supposed to die off. So I got in there, and I got on this creek bottom, and knowing this creek bottom is going to be a place that's going to flood and cause the animals to get up and move around a little bit, I kind of gamed on, or bank or counted on that happening and seeked out some good cover high ground. And once I got on that good cover high ground, I had a, a, a really nice 10 point, probably a one, low 130s that came out on me and gave me an optimal shot. And I mean, I ended up busting my butt to get that deer out of there because the water had came up several feet and I, a creek that I walked across in my rubber boots going in. Ended up having to swim out, dragging the deer out. But, uh, did you did you send me that photo yesterday of you pulling that deer? There, there's a photo of you walking through water with a deer behind you. No, that was actually a Missouri hunt. That was a deer I killed in Missouri two years ago on a week-long hunt. And I had waded him down the river. And uh, the, the particular place I killed this deer, you can either go by river, which is about two miles to get to the spot, or you can go by public land where you kind of got to go around some private land. It's about a four-mile hike. And, of course, wading the deer out by river was in my benefit over trying to move him across four miles of hilly land in central Missouri. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's one thing I noticed. You sent us a bunch of photos, and I saw you had this one really good buck in the front of a uh, canoe um, uh, paddling down a river. Do you remember that hunt and kind of the photo I'm talking about? And maybe you can walk us through, like, some of the boat access that you've used to kill Time out, time out, time out. I want to back up for a minute because I know because we're about to move past this, and I really I'm curious about it. Okay, well hold on to that. The Louisiana buck. Okay. That uh, that we just talked about the the ten point. You said that uh, there was there was a high spot in the swamp that was going to flood with this heavy rain, and it had good cover on it, so you focused on that. What was that deer doing, and what was your setup like? I want to I want to dig into that hunt because that's very interesting. 
So in this particular one, I had no stand. I was I just moved in lightly, knowing I was going to have to probably swim a couple creeks. I had a pack that was light but big enough that if I had to pack a deer out, I could put a deer in it. I, given I quartered it up in the woods. And then I, uh, this was a rifle hunt, which down in Louisiana, I don't count out rifle hunting just because of the, the hunting pressures down there are difficult. And I got down there on that. I, I found some deadwood area that I can use to stack up around me. I usually try to find big, down there you have these, uh, these oak trees that have these real gnarly root systems. And I'll get in between them and put some deadwood around me. So that particular set, I was set up in a base of these big oak trees where I had that deadwood around me, a little bit of cover. And I'm just set back in this oak tree. And it's actually a pretty comfortable set like that. It's almost like a little recliner there. And then uh, just use that as a, a, a running gun style of hunting. I, uh, I like to still hunt during this heavy rain until I find a place that looks good. And that's kind of what I did. I didn't really go in there with the mind of sitting in a certain spot. I went in there with a mine and still hunting during this heavy weather to get to a place that looked good and then plant down once the movement was going to start. And exactly what I did, and it worked to my benefit. And I had a very awesome. similar hunt like that this year also. Now, so when, you, when you're still hunting through there and, and you found the spot to set up, what was that buck doing? Was he bugging out of the bottom that was flooding, or was he going out to feed right after the rain stopped? Like, What was the deer actually doing when you saw him? No, this time the the rain has stopped and this or has slowed. And this was a uh, a later November hunt, and the deer was kind of he was moving like he was cruising for does, but he wasn't just like trotting through the woods. He 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 was moving pretty good pace. He had that, like I said, that kind of that posture as if he was cruising for does. And so if I had to guess, I said that's what he was doing. He wasn't necessarily moving out as if he was evacuating area or scared. He wasn't necessarily browsing or feeding. I think he just had got up on his feet and was on a cruise. And Ben, you said that you had a hunt last year in Missouri that was similar. What was that hunt like? So the one I had last year in Missouri, it was a, uh, I, of course, I live in Kansas now, right now. And Missouri is only a couple hours away for me to the, the western border of Missouri. And it was a really bad snowstorm we had for a little bit. It set in on us i think it dropped like four to six inches depending on where you was at on us which in this area is a good bit of snow and uh i got over there while the snowstorm was going on and was moving in the snow well once it kind of started lightening the snow had lightened down and was getting just some small flurries and it was getting closer to later in the evening i found me a good place to set up and i actually had a really good buck come across me uh I think I sent you a picture of the particular buck laying in the snow. It's a uh, it's a nine point with a broken G two, and you see, yep. I didn't get a good picture of him with me because I was in there by myself and ended up having to pack that deer out. That's a good buck. But uh, we're, we're looking at it right now. Golly, yeah, that's that would have been a hundred and forty inch buck that I got on a one day hunt over to Missouri. Man, <laughs> I mean, that's that's not something that happens on a regular basis. That just there's a lot of being in the right place at the right time on that situation. And I think a lot of the right time on that was the tail end of a nasty snowstorm. And what, drove what were you, animals got to move. yeah, Ben, what were you focusing on that hunt again? Like what were you trying to target? So, knowing that was a, a significant cold front that came through, I was looking for set up off of, uh, 
something that was going to hold sustainable food sources is deer. Because when we get these deer in, in that kind of weather up here in the Midwest, they like to get up and move, but also get some kind of leafy greens in their belly, whether it's grasses off the of field edges and stuff. In that particular area, there was a big CRP slash wild grass field that was off the edge of a, uh, a ridge that had a bunch of cedars. Mm-hmm. And I came along that ridge and sat down on the edge of it in places where it looked like there was everything was covered in snow, so you, I couldn't just find tracks. But places that looked like there had been heavy deer travel coming off that ridge into those fields. And then that deer came down parallel to that ridge along the edge of that field and gave me a good good shot. Awesome. Very cool. Well, uh, let me get back, unless Andrew has another question, uh, let me get back to uh, that boat access. You know, how often have you used boat access in the past for you to hunt? And um, Let me just ask that first. Yeah, how often have you used boat access in the past to, to get to some harder access public? Uh, I've done it a good bit. Uh, I won't say as much in Louisiana and Texas. I have used it there on swamps or rivers to run up a river. Um, the, the pictures you're seeing are of a, a canoe access, and I'm, I'm using them more so in Missouri and uh, in Kansas than I did down there. Um, the picture you're looking at, I actually did not use the canoe to access for the hunt, where I walked in for the hunt, but once I killed the animal, I wanted to bring the animal out whole for the rest of the hunting party. So I drug him down near the river and came out and got the canoe and floated down the canoe to pick up the deer for the recovery. Very cool. Well, let me, let me ask when you're in Kansas in uh, Missouri, how are you using, uh, you know, boat axes or canoe to, you know, work for your advantage getting in some areas? So one of the, the significant parts of Kansas public land is almost all your public land here the state land or federal land is wrapped around water sources, whether it's state lakes or uh, rivers or something like that. The, the land is basically a boundary around these, these water sources. And uh, one of my favorite hunting places here in Kansas is a big chunk of private around a small lake or big chunk of public around a small lake that's surrounded by private all around that public. And uh, in order to, access it by foot you pretty much got to walk the lake shores and boundaries that from the lake shore to the end of public it's only two three hundred yards across there and you bump a lot of these deer up and then once you get off the public onto the private it's all fields so these deer are bedded along these lake shores around these uh, along this public land around these lake shores so i just drop my canoe in these creeks or these lakes and come in by water that way i can come up park my canoe on the bank and just move 50 to 100 yards into the 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 public off the lake and be in a good hunting spot but not bumping a lot of deer getting in there and uh i think got a picture of my son with about 150 inch eight point he killed this year we took that deer in that tactic um you have a picture of my wife with about a about 135 inch 10 points she killed this year used the same tactic actually the exact same spot my son killed his buck and then uh, there's another picture where I'm paddling and my wife's in the front of the canoe mm-hmm. with about 130-inch 10-pointer there. And uh, that was a buck I took this year using the exact same tactic in another spot. Ooh, listen, y'all are brave going across some open water like that. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> uh, and well, anyone- what, what, what you can't tell in that picture is that water under that canoe is only about two foot deep. Oh, that's my kind of water. So it actually makes it really difficult for motor boats to run up in there unless hmm. they have a surface drive engine very interesting okay very cool very cool um 
Well, that, that's kind of showing how, you know, you being creative on access and just doing what you need to to get in on these deer and, you know, find these mature bucks. Now, let me ask, you know, these harder to access places, you know, how often are you implementing trail cameras on some of these spots, you know, some of these areas that you do know there's less hunting pressure just because it's, it's more difficult to get to? So, I mean, my Missouri hunt's pretty uh, pretty regular. I got a group of guys that meets me there. And we'll go over in the summer and drop cameras. I may be in there – this year, I hadn't got over there yet, and I wanted to. But here in the next three, four weeks prior to season, I might get in there and drop a camera and leave that camera there until I get there on the hunt and hope someone will steal it on private land or public land and take my SD card, whatever the case may be. And uh, once I get there for the hunt, we'll run these cameras and just kind of give us inventory of what's in there and, if possible, to make patterns off of it. Now, here in Kansas, where I live at, I have the ability to run these cameras more often. And I'm using the cameras now to get an inventory of what's in the woods. I'll go in there, I'll drop a camera, I'll leave it for three or four weeks, and I'll go back in there and I'll pull it and relocate it somewhere else. And I'm not really using them right now to pattern the animals as much as get a get a good inventory. And you'll see me posting some. I don't hide what I get. I, I post post them on different Facebook pages and groups and so on. You've got some and giants I, on camera. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't mind hiding what I get. It's, because, I mean, if someone's going to put in the effort to hunt there, bring it on. Let, let Go in there and hunt. Um, I'm more power to them. If they're going to put in the effort to hunt that kind of area and, and do it without uh, just going in there and being a buffoon. Mm. But uh, <laughs> I will key in on cameras on certain areas that it gets closer to seasons. And I do have one particular area here, and nothing explains it. There is a big, thick area near it, and there's some really uh, brushy hardwood near it also then it goes in open fields and i have four or five giants in the same on the same camera i mean if you look at i think i got them on hunting beast and cover their posts you'll see where i got four or five really good bugs and i think so and span out to be 140 150 inch bucks are bigger on one camera in the same spot in a matter of a week and uh so i'll, I'll put a camera there and start trying to pattern those critter those deer i'll uh i'll leave it there and I may check it from now to season one more time just because I don't want to go in there and put a lot of human influence in that area and mess up those deer. You have found your area way off a road. You have maybe found that there's deer in there. Maybe you've ran cameras. Maybe you've seen deer. But when you go in to hunt that spot, how do you know what, how do you, how are you figuring out which tree you're getting in? Like when it comes to get having a deer walk by you at 20 yards, what are some things that you look for to put that deer right next to you? So right away when I get in there with the cameras and stuff, I'm always taking inventory of trees. Anytime I'm in the woods, no matter if it's a place I'm going to hunt or not, I'm looking at every tree and how am I going to hunt that tree? And if I'm walking through the area for the first time, it's one of the things I'm, I'm kind of figuring out is do I need to plan on bringing up ground blind in there and ground hunting that area? Do I don't, Growing, growing up down south, we relied on climbing stands. Is that area I need to bring a climbing stand or a lock-on stand? Or I've gotten into the saddle hunting deal. So is it a place that my saddle will benefit me? And almost all my hunts are hanging a hunt. Or I go in that day and I set up and I hunt whatever. It's a ground blind, a climbing stand, a saddle, or just brush piled up on the ground, driftwood. And when I'm in that area, I'll make that decision – before I ever consider hunting area, what's best to hunt that area? 
And most of the time it's mental notes. Sometimes I'll I'll drop pins on my Onyx saying, hey, this is an area that when I do come in here blindly at night, I need to come with a climbing stand or I need to climb with my saddle or I don't need to bring a stand. I need to just plan on setting up on the ground. And then when it does come time to that I want to hunt that area, most of the time I'll have one or two trees generally in mind for that first hunt and I'll hit that that tree. But if I get in there and I do that first set and it, turns out more of an observation set then i'll identify a tree that i'm going to hunt the next time i'm in there whether it's the next day or three weeks later mm-hmm. i'm going to hit that tree the next time i'm in there well when you're picking out like those one or two trees that you're going to get in what is it that's making you pick those two trees is it a food source that's right next to them or maybe some kind of some some feature that might be funneling the deer to come right by that tree a lot of times for me it's a funnel for a travel corridor um it's something that's going to create a a particular area these deer are going to travel through um very rarely will it be a food source it may be sometimes it may be i know these deer are bedded up in one area and i'm setting up off his beds because i mean i'm where i think these deer are going to get up out of the bed and travel in a certain direction um but majority of the time it's it's some kind of travel corridor or pinch point um here in kansas one of the big things I look for is a where the woods kind of get tight between the lakes that I'm hunting off of and the private land, which is typically open fields, cattle pasture, cropland, or CRP. And these bigger bucks won't really hit those open fields where the younger deer may walk them. They'll, they'll stick more to the wood line. So I look for where that point gets narrow, and I can sit up in there and shoot all the way to the lake or all the way to the field on the other side or have the best chance of the deer coming within range. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's my most common factor here. Now, uh, when I'm in uh, Missouri, it's a little bit different because there's a lot more timber and a lot less fields. So I'm looking more for which area these animals are accessing where I think they're going to and setting up on that side of it. But in a way that the wind or the thermals play to my advantage. Um I had a field this past season. I noticed a lot of deer was coming in on the north side of it. And there was a cliff and a river on the north side of it. one side on the northeast side was a cliff. Northwest side was a river. So I identified that they were coming in between that cliff and that river and found a good spot in there to set up. It was more of the, the choke points or the travel corridors that is going to pinch these deer together in a small area and give me the best chance for a shot. Ben, I need to ask you, what is your perspective on, on hunting the wind or, or, you know, just wind in general? You know, are, are you seeing like some of these mature bucks you've, you've killed and, you know, a bunch of these different states from Texas to Louisiana, Missouri, Kansas, you know, how are they using wind and how do you use wind to your advantage? So I try to put the wind so that it blows to an area I don't think the deer's going. Uh, here in Kansas, it's really easy. I put a open field on my wind or my wind blowing over an open field that I don't think the deer's going to come across or the most common thing I go to is the wind blowing across the lake. Um, on top of that here in Kansas, we have pretty strong winds. It's pretty directional. So it's pretty easy to read where when I hunted Louisiana and Texas, it was a lot more difficult. One, the deer paid a lot more caution to the wind there, but also you get swirls. Uh, it's not like I got 15 mile per hour directional wind. It's just, steady and it's pretty easy to know which way my wind's blowing i might get in a tree and the wind on whatever weather app or 
uh, onyx or whatever says it's blowing one direction, but as I drop milkweed or cotton or whatever you're using, dust, feathers, um, you see that wind swirling or going totally opposite direction of what the weather report has stated. So a lot of time there, it's trying to figure out what the wind's doing in the woods and playing it. I don't believe in a lot of the scent control or the scent blocker suits and stuff. Um, I have a pretty good background in law enforcement and I've done a lot of work with canines and we've played with this stuff. And it's just, it may work for people. I just, I don't put a lot of, a lot of weight behind it. I, I depend on making sure the wind's not blowing where I think deer's going to be, especially hunting down South. I will say these Kansas deer, there is times I will use the wind as my kill zone. I will set up so that because these deer here was stopping freezing the wind mature buck was stopping freezing the wind and can give you optimal shot so there is times i will set set up so that the wind is going to blow from me to where my kill zone is going to be and i'm depending on that deer catching my wind and stopping freezing but that's because i'm in a state where the deer are going to do that if i tried that in texas it ain't or louisiana it was it ain't gonna work out my benefit Ah, see, one, one thing I was going to say when I interrupted you was, you know, you're probably one of my favorite guys we've had on that kind of lives in that Midwest because you've lived in the South and you know the struggles we go through when it comes to the wind and how edgy these deer are. So it, it's good to have a guy on that can understand that and uh, had that experience. Yeah, I've given a lot of my success growing up hunting down South and dealing with the the struggles of hunting highly pressured deer. So let's talk about this. I'm glad we got you on because that you, what you just said just brought something. What is your perspective, okay, when it comes from like you growing up hunting like East Texas and then Louisiana to go into uh, to go to Kansas and Missouri? What's the biggest difference from hunting in the South versus out there when it comes to killing mature deer and opportunities? I will bust my butt all season in Louisiana and Texas to find a handful of big deer and hope one walks in front of me. <laughs> and what's a big deer Where, down there? Here, th- what's that? What's a big deer down there in Louisiana for you? And that, we're talking 120 inch deer. Like I will bust my butt and just to hope to find 120 inch deer. Or normally I'll find two or three of them, and then to hope that one will get in front of me and present me a a good shot. But here in Kansas, I mean. I wouldn't even consider shooting 120 inch deer at this point. It's, I hate saying that as a public land hunter, I don't want to degrade 120 inch deer because some of my favorite trophies are 120 inch deer. I got a couple, probably 110 inch deer. It's some of my favorite trophies, but talking to Midwest hunters, they're like, yeah, that's, yeah, I don't know if I'd shoot that deer. And I understand it now. I mean, I live here and I see the amount of big deer that I have walk in front of me almost every hunt, if not every, I mean, if not every hunt, every two or three hunts, I'm going to have an option at 100 to 110 inch deer, where that's a deer that I'm excited to see in the South. Interesting. And that's kind of where I thought you were going to get at. Now, when it comes to just opportunity at mature deer, you, you just think those numbers are so much higher kind of out in that Midwest than what you're seeing down in Louisiana and Texas. Yeah. And one of the things I, I like to blame it on is a, a long gun season. Um, the Gulf states are typically have two to three month gun seasons and a mature deer has to get really smart or they're going to get killed. And, uh, I mean, both Missouri and Kansas, the two Midwest States, I got the most experience hunting have very short gun seasons. I mean, you're looking at at most a two week gun season to hunt these places with a center fire rifle. 
And then if you add muzzleloader into it, you may have another three or four weeks at best. Other than that, you're, you're bow hunting them. And these deer don't get that heavy hunting pressure like they do. They, they're allowed to get mature and not be, not be super educated getting matured. On top of that, Kansas has a one buck a year limit. Um, I mean, in Louisiana and Texas, both, I could kill three bucks a year. And that's devastating on your buck population. It makes it hard for a, to find quality mature bucks down there. Very interesting. And it's kind of cool, again, get your perspective since you've lived in these areas and hunted all these different areas. Now, let me ask, is, is there a – how big of a difference is it from going from, like, hunting um, Texas and Louisiana and some public land down there to going up to, like, Missouri? Like, you know, does, does everything you do just completely change when it comes to just, like, you know, habitat, what the deer like to stay in, kind of the hunting pressure? You know, does that change when you go just, you know – just really north of Arkansas. Oh yeah. The lay of the land changes. The, the, the way you're looking for sign changes. I mean, down South, I'm looking in swamp bottoms. Everything's muggy. Mud will hold a track forever. Where in Missouri, you got a lot of rock. I mean, it's hard to find a track in rock uh, or tall grasses, especially here in Kansas where everything's a, a field of some kind. And your shortest grasses right now, if I'm in the woods, I'm in chest deep grass everywhere as I go. Whether I'm in a field or if I'm in thick timber, I'm in chest deep brush and grass and who knows what else, milkweed and other stuff. And uh, the, seeing the sign on the ground, heck, here, I'll have, I have a hard time figuring out how to hang a camera so I get a picture of a deer and not brush. But uh, we're down south. I don't really have as much underbrush, and it's it's more of a unique thing to find. Got you. Well, let me ask, from your perspective, hunting all these different public land parcels, you know, finding that hard to access uh, or just limited access places that, you know, you can find these less pressured or unpressured deer because there's just less human presence there. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see guys doing when they're trying to go out and trying to find some of these areas? So uh, I'll use my Missouri hunt as an example because a lot of the guys on that Missouri hunt, they're from down south and one of the first things to get up there is on this public land, they start seeing soybean and cornfields and they want to set up on the edge of these soybean and cornfields. And this hunt's a meat hunt for us. Like we're excited to kill deer period, whether it's old slick head or a four point buck or a, a 10 point with a drop time. But uh, these guys hit these, these food plots or these cornfields, soybean fields, and they set up on them and they end up shooting mature does at best or most time young does and uh young bucks which two of the guys in camp this year were brand new bow hunters and they killed their first bucks ever and they were sighted with little basket rack six and seven points and it made the camp for me i was super excited for them and it just adds to the camaraderie in camp but they're always beating up on me they're like yeah, dude you're killing big deer here every year what what's different and the difference is that i'm going into this thick brush the crp and the stuff it doesn't look as appetizing to a hunter when you first look at it it doesn't look good but it's holding the mature bucks and they're wanting to get these cornfields and they know that where i'm going and they have the option to follow me and every year i tell everyone i'm in camp with me is like hey go sit where i'm gonna sit this evening i'll find a new spot and uh sometimes they do it sometimes they don't but uh, they always want to go back to these fields, and they're happy with their hunts. They kill good deer. They kill lots of deer. 
but they they do want that big buck. We all want a big buck. And they have a hard time breaking away from that easy food source to go kill that big buck. Do you think it's more of a barrier to entry when it comes to hunting that kind of stuff? Like you're in that example, you're talking like thick CRP fields. It's just guys don't like to get in there because that's the lack of, um, you know, visibility when you're walking in or, you know, is it just, you know, some of it's harder to get to just because where it's located, you know, what other reasons do you think guys aren't really necessarily hunting that from your perspective? I've seen numerous reasons, and in, uh, in this group of guys I'm talking about, a couple of them are just not in as good shape, and they're not going to go put that much work into the hunt. Uh, a couple of them are in plenty of good enough shape to get there, but for them to sit on the side of the field and see a bunch of does and a couple small bucks and know they're going to see deer every set is more appetizing to them than sitting in this thick stuff where you might only see one or two deer but you have a chance of seeing some big bucks. Mm. And we see some big bucks on the side of these fields sometimes too. But I ain't saying you're not going to see a big buck there. It's just the odds in our our history has not produced the big bucks on the side of these fields like it has in this thick CRP and brush. I want to pick your I want to pick your brain a little bit about these these thick areas, the CRP fields and brush. Um, you know, there's there's a guy we're looking to get on the show uh, hopefully next week. Um, who has not been on a podcast before, but I think it's going to be a really good show. Like yours, yours has been a fantastic episode. Um, but he has an interesting thought on, you know, going in and hunting places that there's no good trees to get in. Like there's no places you get a lock on really. There's very little, like you can't, there's no way to get a climber in there and you might get a, in a lock and you might be six feet off the ground, eight feet off the ground. These CRP fields and stuff, when you're hunting out there, are you finding like lone or two trees that you can get up in? Or are you hunting off the ground? You know, what is that like in some of those areas that are holding these big deer? I mean, there's a lot of times I am struggling to find a tree to get in. I found myself in trees where I'm sitting five feet off the ground before. And as the story I talked about earlier with the uh, sitting in the field where I brushed down the brush or rolled down the brush so I could just sit there in the middle of the field, there was no tree for me to hunt that spot. Um, and these spots are, whether you're using a saddle or a lock-on or whatever, you got to have multiple options. You can't just stick to one. you got to be creative. Um, I'll say a lot of my spots i like to hunt i have to get really creative with my stand positioning and have options don't go in there one track mind of i'm going to be only in a lock on and i have to find a place to put a lock on or i'm only going to be in the climbing stand i have to put find a place to put a climbing stand um i do think the saddle opens up several options on that just because i can get into these little b short trees and kind of wedge in there and I've, I've been in places where i've had a one direction shot if a deer came in behind me or to my right being a right-handed bow shooter, I was shooting to the left, and that was it. I had a very small particular kill zone, and these places worked out in my benefit. Um, that's That might be something you have to sacrifice in areas like that, is knowing that you're going to have a very small limited kill zone. It may be you're sitting on a grass bank, and you load down, roll down some grass from you to a certain trail, and that's your only kill zone. That, that's very interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. Talking about don't limit yourself to just one setup, whether it's a lock-on climber, saddle, whatever. And one thing we learned this year uh, just regionally is we're, we're starting to push in. Now, where we're hunting in Alabama is different from what it sounds like you were hunting in Louisiana. A lot of these deer, especially the big deer, are in these short pines, uh, between six- to eight-year-old pines uh, that are extremely thick in these trees. You know, at the very biggest, at the base, at the very biggest, might be five to six inches in diameter. And we're starting to push into that and actually started to hunt that a little bit more this year. And the thing is that we ran into is 
you know, we all hunt our saddles and I get some lock-ons and everything too, but you can't really use a saddle in there because there's so many branches. The only shot you'd have is behind you uh, in a lot of situations. So it makes sense to have a small lock-on where you can tuck up inside these small trees, you know, anywhere from ground level all the way up to maybe seven feet up. Um, so you have that very small window, but hey, at least, you know, you have opportunity to make a shot, you know, in a seated position or something. Uh, and so that was kind of interesting how you're talking about that. But one thing that you keep talking about is being creative. You know, when you find the right spot, you're doing whatever you can to get set up to kill a deer there. Whether it's hunt off the ground, whether it's sitting, like you said, five feet off the ground or, you know, get up in a big nasty tree. And that's something that's really interesting because I, I hear, and I've done it so much in the past, and I'm starting to get better and better at not doing this. But when you find a spot that you, you're like, oh, man, there's not really a good tree to get in, you know, oh, crap, you know, especially like early season, bow season, is get comfortable being uncomfortable in getting on the ground or finding that thick cover to get tucked up inside of if the deer sign's there. And it seems like that's what you're doing, especially in those areas with limiting limited trees that you can get in. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, you definitely don't want to sacrifice what you would think would be your kill zone to get in the ideal tree. I would definitely sacrifice the ideal tree or ideal setup for me to have a better kill zone with limited shots. Very nice. Awesome. Well, um, Andrew, do you have, do you have anything? No, I was just going to say that, you know, we've taken a little bit over an hour of your time. Is there anything that we did not ask you that you wish that we asked you? No, I mean, I just like, I don't know, see, see, uh, hunters out there and, if uh, I can share my experiences and it help other hunters, I'm I'm glad to do so. So I mean, yeah, I can't think of anything off head to say, but well, we appreciate it. I mean, that's a big thing for you to do to come on here and just like we say it all the time to share your hard earned knowledge. You know, it took you years to learn this stuff, and you're out there busting your butt and you figured it out and you came on here and, and you know, just told people for free, which is uh, something pretty dang cool you can do. So we definitely appreciate that, man. And I know that a lot of listeners are going to appreciate it as well. And ben, right. I was going to say, I've got, I've got one last question, then we'll wrap it up. What, what, yes, what, would, what would be your last kind of tip to the listeners? And I love, I love asking guys this cause it's all, you know, always get different answers. What would be a tip you'd give to the listeners uh, you know, guys busting their butt on some public land this, you know, this fall to go out there and try to find and locate a mature buck. What would you tell them to go out and try doing? I would just try to hit as many new spots as you can. Um, if you're getting out there early fall and you're scouting, hit as many new spots as you can and create as big of a mental library or a digital library if you're using an app, a place to hunt as you possibly can. That way, when your go-to spot is ruined whether it's another hunter or whatever the case may be you have other options but give yourself as many options as possible holy smokes that was a lot of information uh dude when we started when we started that podcast we in the way that you dove into it i looked down and it was at 12 minutes i was like holy crap we've talked about a lot in 12 minutes like it was going fast man How'd you th- what'd you think about it? Awesome. I like, I like change it up, man. You know, there's sometimes I like to ask guys, you know, what's their background, but you know what? Let's just get to the point. What, <laughs> this is, what, you know, why are you being successful? You learn about their background through the, you know, the stories they tell. Yeah, exactly. But no, that, you know, Ben has been a guy I've been trying to get on for close to a year now. Um, you know, I wanted to get him on uh, pretty late in the season last year. 
back in January and uh, just didn't make it happen. And we kind of, you know, we had all of our deer content kind of lined out. So I was able to kind of come back around to him. I was glad he was able to want to come on because uh, he hasn't been on a show before. He's been extremely successful hunting public land um, and in a bunch of different states, which is cool. I mean, that's the biggest thing for me is it's one thing to be have a lot of success locally on your local piece of public, which is cool. That's awesome, you mm-hmm. know. But it's another thing when you can apply that to different places, especially you know as you move and as you travel. Yeah. Um, it seems like he doesn't have much of a learning curve. Like it is this like someplace new. He's got it, you know, picked out. And the coolest thing is his thought process on finding hard access or difficult to access places that's going to have less hunting pressure and use that. He, he it seems like his goal is to outwork people. Mm-hmm. Uh, or outsmart people uh, when it comes to just finding these places that uh, just either are overlooked or just they're more difficult than what the average guy is going to want to dive in on. Uh, and it's paid off. I mean, shoot, as if you if you're watch if you're listening to this show and you haven't gone to the Facebook page or the Instagram page and seen the photos of some of these bucks you've killed, he's killed. You might want to because it's a lot of them. And it's a lot of really really good deer. Um, and now one thing that we talked about with the air. <clears throat> that I told him I really appreciated him um, speaking about is he grew up in the Southeast. He's grew up in a coastal state, you know, Eastern Texas. And he's hunted down here and he understands the struggle of hunting in the South, you know, from the swirling winds uh, to different, you know, um, you know, front, front systems that push through and how the wind systems can change to just the overall general quality of bucks and yeah. how much more limited that supply is of mm-hmm. mature deer. Yeah. And they're not even mature deer, but just big deer. I mean, you can have a mature deer. It's 110 inches. I mean, yeah. you could have a four or five year old deer that's 110 inches. Oh yeah. Um, to go into that struggle, getting consistent down here, to then move to a different state like now Kansas, and he's like, dude, it's like cherry picking. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he's like, he's like, this is something that, and you come from that background of struggling and busting your butt for, as he said, just busting your butt for a six point. Yeah. But getting good at it, and then you come out here, and it's just like there's so many more deer you can really kind of cherry pick and, you know, find that better quality buck. And from having that experience, it's really applied well for him. So. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> I thought that was an interesting uh, perspective. And I like guys like that who, like you said, they they know how to apply their, their tactics across, like, a wide area. Mm-hmm. Being able to take tactics I use in Alabama and be able to go somewhere – with uh, like a more limited season and go hunt for those older age class bucks. I really like learning that across the board stuff that I can apply. Cause we bounce around Alabama too. Yeah. You know? Um, so I, I definitely like that aspect of it. You can, you can leverage that kind of stuff to, you know, broaden your horizon a little bit. One thing that he talked about, which I really liked is no matter where he goes, he's looking for the same stuff. And I, I kind of just talked about that, but it's like, this is an episode to me that can apply in all over the place, all over the country. You know, trying to find that stuff that's overlooked and trying to find the hard access piece of public. Um, and really, like he talks about, you know, a lot of times it's the locals that aren't the ones trying to get back in there. You know, yeah. A lot of times it's, it might be the guys coming from out of state that are willing to, you know, they're here for five days. They're going to try to make something happen. But I, I feel like if, especially when he talked about, you know, water access, I think like water boundaries is something that a lot of people think about. You know, putting a couple creeks between you and the access point, putting a river between you and the access point, <clears throat> or whatever. But one thing he talked about, which I really could relate with, <clears throat> is that vegetation uh, barriers, like super, super thick vegetation that you have to punch through yeah. in order to get to some of these more prime spots. I like that, man. I love that because, like the, I mean, the reality is, is down here, there's just very few places where you can actually get two miles from a road. 
I mean, there's very few places in Alabama where you can get two miles from a paved road. I, I freaking I draw roads on a map all day at work. Like there's so many roads, it's it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like everywhere, all throughout the state, on the public lands, on private lands. I mean, there's just like we we live in a extremely roaded part of the country, you know. Um, so look looking at more unique things like some some kind of barrier to entry to get into a place. I think that's the key for sure because I mean the reality is you just can't get. You know, if you can get, if you can truly get one mile from a road without running into another road or getting close to another road, uh, I mean, that's pretty rare. And, and not even a paved road, but just an access road. Yeah. I mean, especially in timber company lane, good luck with that. Well, yeah. And when we interviewed Glenn Solomon about this time last year. Um, Actually, yeah. Yeah. It was right at this time last year. We interviewed him, and I re listened to his the other day again. Uh, and one thing he was talking about was like the long access trails where there's a gate, you know, Georgia's got this kind of stuff all over it where it's like a a Mm walk-in or whatever. You park at the gate and there might be a walk-in that's like a a trail that you can walk on that's like a mile long. And he's like, people walk to the end of that all day. It's easy walking, walking on a road. People walk right to the end and then they still hunt, you know, 100, 200, 300 yards off the edge of that access road. Just because they have to walk a mile on a road doesn't mean anything. But busting out in the brush and crossing creeks, crossing thickets, you know, going up and down a hill and then over the next hill, you know, stuff like that is what is going to put distance between you and other hunters. That's a very good point. And by the way, if anyone, if I know we got a lot of new listeners. We have a lot of people onboarded in the last month yeah so we got a lot of new listeners and we appreciate y'all i'm glad the show's been able to get out there and your buddies are sharing the show with you and you're just finding out by yourself but i would highly recommend there's some episodes that we did last year that i would highly recommend listening to uh one being glenn solomon's episode rest in peace uh he passed away back in august mm-hmm. um but we did legend yeah we did an episode with him back uh last july i think it's episode 116 uh, and yes, I, and I would it. highly recommend going back and listening to that episode. That episode set us down the road that we're on right now. Yeah, for sure. It changed the way that we produce content. It changed the way we seek out guests. It changed the way we think about hunting. Mm-hmm. You know, Glenn. Yeah, man, Glenn. It's so tragic that he he passed away, man. That sucks. But look, I'll say one one thing about that. It, I mean, it's always tragic losing somebody, but at least we were able to document. Yeah, his perspective, mm-hmm. you know, his own words, and people can still go back and listen to it. You know, friends, family can go back and listen to it. Um, yeah, which is amazing. That's one thing I'm really proud about. You know, be able to produce something like this. But oh yeah, again, long story short, kind of going back to this topic uh, with Ben. You know, his perspective also just hunting places that you know the average guy is going to overlook, especially bow hunting, like those big CRP fields, talking like Missouri and stuff. Um, you know, going in areas that have very limited tree access, you know, very limited places that you can get in a stand. you got to think outside the box. As he talks about having that kill window mm-hmm. uh, where he knows that he can get in a spot that he's got a good shot. It might limit his opportunity where he's going to shoot, but he's got a really good shot in one spot is what he's focusing on. And, mm-hmm. you know, hunting off the ground and also hunting out of some of these really thick trees, especially early season, I can kind of understand what he's talking about there for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was an interesting episode. <clears throat> I like uh, – I like how you just mentioned that because that's one thing that I've heard, um, like who uh, Cody DeQuisto mentioned before, which you know he's hunting like literally the best you know land in the entire country for whitetails. So take it with a grain of salt. But oh, yeah. yeah, I mean uh, that's one thing he talks about a lot is he's like I don't need you know to be able to shoot four to five different trails. I need to be able to shoot the right trail, and that's kind of very similar to what Ben was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so. That's uh, something that 
We could probably definitely take into consideration more considering some of the things that happened last year as far as, you know, having deer just off. Um, like, for instance, uh, when we were down there, we're, we're planning on hunting early season this year. When we were there last year, uh, there's like four or five different trails, and I got in the spot where I could see all of them, and then this nice, would have been my best buck ever, especially with a bow, walked literally right underneath me. And I didn't see him because he came in from behind me. And if I had set up in the more logical spot, then I probably would have killed him, mm-hmm. you know. <clears throat> Which gives, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. It's like, don't always look at where you have the, the widest view or, like, the the most shot angles. Find the one that is the highest odd position and get set up in it. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, I feel like I'm guilty of. <clears throat> in a lot of situations, I feel like, especially hunting thick cover, I'm trying to step in the spot that I have the most visibility in that thick cover, okay, for, like, mm-hmm. different shot angles. And maybe trying to push in a little bit deeper or find that spot where it is just worn out and you literally have that one window to shoot, and that's it. I mean, kind of like Adrian Farley talks about that a lot, you know, hunting some real thick stuff. I think it's episode, like, 125, um, you know, where – He's hunting super, super thick stuff down the south, and he has very limited shot opportunities. I mean, just because the deer is with, within 30 yards, if he's hunting with a rifle, does not mean that deer's dead because of how thick that stuff is. Um, but put yourself in a position where maybe you have this, the higher odds of, if you know, if a big buck is pushing through, he's probably going to come through this one spot. Instead, mm-hmm. of he, if he comes from any one of these directions, he's probably going to come through, you know, this look at this scrape. Yeah. Um, but in other news... Uh, we've been running a ton of trail cameras. Yeah, a bunch, man. How many shooters do we have located? Ten? I, I lost count. I uh, think it's ten. Yeah. I'm pretty and, sure. And two that Michael found are hammers. <laughs> yep. Nice bucks. Yeah. Real nice bucks. Um, I just put my camera out in a new spot. Uh, it is about five yards from the road where I literally found this you yeah, know where yeah, you know where it is. No, yeah, but you you, I, you didn't tell me anything about it. So oh, yeah. So it, I was. You, you said you found like some money spot. You're like, oh, we're gonna talk about it. We never talked about. it. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So, um, I got off Did work get, early no, yesterday. Hold on. Hold on. Huh? Are you eating peanut butter? I, I, mm, mm, don't say nothing about. It. Okay. Anyways, uh, some people will know what he's referencing, but I'm not gonna say it because then everyone will notice. Anyway, that's kind of the point. So you'll stop doing it. Ah, God, no. <laughs> no, I'm so self-conscious. <laughs> <laughs> so I got off work early yesterday and, uh, I didn't really, well, first I was like, I need to get a haircut cause I haven't cut my hair since like March. So I went and did that. Ain't nobody care about that. <laughs> Dude, I know, but I was like, so I did that and then I'm like, well, I can't, I don't have time to scout now cause it took forever. Cause I don't know why I had to did, wait forever you, for did COVID. You, did it make you wear a mask? No. What, where'd you? Okay, I'm I went to talk. sports no. clips, okay. man, because yeah. I've called them and they said I didn't have to wear a mask, so I went there because I, nice. I just I don't like masks. So, anyways, and I don't have one. So, anyways, I so I'm like crap. I don't have time because the haircut took forever. So I go out and I'm like, well, I'll just put a camera out because um, I, I can. And so I go driving out there, and since I don't really have time to go out there and scout, I'm like, well, I'm just gonna run this road. I really need to get this camera out because it's just sitting in my truck and it's not doing any good sitting in my truck. So I just, I'm going to run down the road and I'm literally going to get to spots where there's dirt on the side of the road that's good for tracks. And I'm going to ease down and just look for tracks right there on the side of the road and see, because what we're finding is a lot of these deer are browsing on the edge of the road because these roads, they're open. So you got these forbs and everything growing up uh, and the deer are just walking down roads eating. So 
we've been putting a lot of cameras on stuff like that. So I go down, find my initial spot, and I'm like thinking about putting it there. But then I go down a little further, and there's a, a big, again, a big pine thicket right there, uh, about the right age, good undergrowth. And there's a, a little stand of hardwoods next to it, and there's a good edge. And looking on the map, I can see an old logging trail that goes down into this. Mm. And one thing that we were talking about is uh, – especially with this new mapping we've been doing and, and you can go back in historical imagery and, and we've walked so many trails actually in these thickets over the years and, and tracked them. And we know exactly where these big heavy deer trails are. And a lot of times in these thickets, they're on the old logging roads, like the old skitter trails. Even if there's not really even a road there, it's usually a little more open or something. And I mean, it's, it's uncanny how well the deer trails follow these, these old logging roads through these cuts. So I was looking for that. And like newer cutovers or older cutovers. Michael found Michael brought that up in one spot where he was asking where the deer were crossing at. Remember? Mm-hmm. And you yep. kind of put it on a map. He's like, dude. And he like went back. He's like, that's where the old logging roads are at. And you can't oh, yeah. see him like on, when you pull up on the side of the road. You can't see there's an, ever was an old logging road there. Yeah. But when you go back and you know Google Google Earth. Yeah. You can see that's exactly where those old logging roads come up and hit, like you know perpendicular hit the road. That's where those deer are crossing, which is. Yeah, good, good little tip. But anyways, and, and that's and I use the lidar for that with these maps I've been making. Is you can see the you can see those old trails in there, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so <clears throat> I found one of those in this new spot. It's in close proximity to an edge, close proximity to water, good thick cover, a lot of browse, a lot of green stuff under there that they're eating. So I'm like, let's go check this out. So I walk up to where this this logging road kind of comes up out of this thicket, runs very close to the edge of this hardwoods, comes up and gets to the top of the hill. And then there's like a, I guess the road maybe had split right there. There's a little open spot where it's just clay, dirt, you know. And I walk up there and there's two berms that they've built up um, to where like, obviously a long time ago when this road was still not, had trees all in it and everything, they bermed it off so people couldn't walk, like drive down that road. Well, on that berm, there was two sets of, two distinct sets of tracks that happened since the last rain. So there was a bunch of tracks that had been rained on. I mean, like beat down, just a bunch of tracks. But there was two sets since the rain, which happened a few days ago, and they were both like big tracks. I'm talking like almost four finger tracks, like big tracks. So, uh, you know, probably a big old fat doe with some big feet, but who knows? Might be a buck. So I put my camera right there, and it's literally, I mean, five yards off of the road. I mean, it's right by the road. But if we get deer on camera right here. I think it'll be a really cool spot because of the diversity in there. Um, and some of the opportunities we have to access that we can come, we can go up and around and J hook very easily back towards the road. There's a lot of different places we can park. I mean, it's going to be, I think it'll be a good spot if we can locate some stuff right there. And the best part is, and I, I can't really say why, but you know why nobody deer hunts it. Nobody, absolutely nobody deer hunts this. Correct. Especially no one, bow hunts it yeah no Mm-mm. for sure no um but yeah that that is interesting and you know what that area kind of that general area is an area that i have thought a lot about mm-hmm. that could hold a, some big deer could hold a lot of deer and they go unseen two years ago this is this is the same area where if you've been listening for a while you've heard us talk about me and my buddy zach put out a camera 
on the edge of this thicket, same same pine thicket that I'm talking about right here. It was two years ago. We put a camera right there on the edge on a big bed. There's a big fallen tree, and there's a That's big... That's where that was at? Yep. Oh. It's not the same spot. It's the same thicket. It's yeah. like a couple hundred yards down the road. Gotcha. But uh, big, worn down to the dirt bed, one of the very few that I found in Alabama that are that heavy, put, put the camera on it, and we got a pretty nice 10-point on camera in there. Uh, he wasn't, like, huge, but he was a younger deer, so I'm wondering if he might still be around. Uh, hopefully he is, because that would be awesome to get to chase him. Well, that is something exciting. I know Michael's been pulling a couple cameras, and Michael's supposed to join us tonight, and then he's he had uh, he got tied up. Yeah, some family stuff going on. But um, I know he's been running cameras. He's had a couple of really big deer show up, um, along with us having a bunch of cameras out. And I think, you know, one thing we were talking about, is at least me and Michael were talking about this. That's one reason I wish he was here. Is we were talking about you know how often we've been running cameras, which is you know been pretty much on a weekly basis. Uh, and you know talking to Josh Driver uh, on his episode, which I think was episode one forty. Well, the original one was one forty one, but the most recent one I think was like one thirty one seventy four. Yeah. Um, how to locate your target bucks now? Mm-hmm. He was talking about running cameras up in Kentucky uh, on a weekly basis and running them at night. Uh, throughout the summer, all the way up until season. And me and Michael were talking about, you know, we've been running them about once a week, but we haven't been running them at night. We've been running them a lot in the afternoons. And I feel like we are definitely disturbing the deer um, in those areas. And one of the greatest examples was, you know, one of the first card pulls he did in this one spot, this real thick area, he had a really, really good buck on camera, uh, on video, right in front of the camera feeding. Um, he came back in, uh, he, you know, put the camera, you know, uh, put the car back in there, came back in, you know, another week, a uh, week later and there was less deer. And by, I think the third card pull, there was no more deer there, uh, which was interesting because there had been a lot of deer sign there previously. Um, I know in the areas I was at and where I actually bumped the bachelor group of bucks, the camera I put in there close to where the bucks were bedded. Uh, on that transition from a drainage into these really, really uh, thick pines, I thought it was a money spot. I mean, there's a bunch of trails kind of cord, you know, crossing out there, you know, tracks, droppings. Put the camera out, nothing for a week. And I was very, very just interested and curious. And one thing I was talking to Michael about is, like, right now, at least in this area, how nomadic some of these deer could be. There's yeah. food everywhere, unless they're specifically bedding in a certain spot every single night, which I doubt it. They can cover a ton of ground, find a ton of good food sources, water sources, everything like that, um, based off whatever they want to do, which I feel like is making it challenging. So me and him were talking about, I don't know if we explained to you, the thing about doing a check every, you know, two to maybe three weeks in some of these hot spots, but run more cameras. So you're rotating between these cameras. So you're constantly checking cameras, but it's on a rotation. Yeah. Um, I told him, I would, dude, I would love, I would love it. I don't know how many cameras we got now. It's probably like. 20 plus um i think i don't know how i think he's got no you don't think it's that many well, i don't know how many michael has i've only got three right now i had to throw away a bunch of mine oh my gosh man you're just not helping the cause i know but um <clears throat> i would love it if we each had 20 cameras apiece. oh my gosh listen I, it's crazy <laughs> it's crazy i know but i feel, need to get sponsored <laughs> hey listen someone, someone listening right now is associated with a trail camera company let us know okay? <laughs> yeah. i will put an ad out there so quick for a trail cam company. <laughs> i'm letting all the listeners know right now but uh <laughs> anyway 
but to cover more ground and get a better idea of what's going on, but still be able to check cameras on a weekly basis uh, without having to, uh, you know, put excess pressure on that area. Um, again, I don't know what your, your thought process is on that, um, especially us kind of diving into some of these areas. And then Michael had the, Michael had the thought process uh, about if we went in and pushed all these deer back into the areas that they were at, like, late season, and then they're kind of, you know, oh, that's kind of crazy. Talking about going in, pressuring the deer. Before, right now? Not necessarily right now, but get them back into some of the thicker spots that we were finding them late season last year. And then they're kind of, you know, pushed in there and you can kind of hunt the fringes of them. I don't know. I thought that was kind of. kind of. I think that would be really hard to do. That would be extremely hard to do. Because, then, because the problem with that is then you're committing time just to like basically bumping deer. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe you'll kill them, but I mean, I mean the way that we're hunting them anyways, we're already going to be putting the pressure on them. So, yeah. But anyways, um, just, I think running more cameras is something I'm very curious in. I mean, first off, it's exciting. Oh dude. It's Every time really... you pull it, listen, cause I've never been huge into running cameras. Every time you pull a camera, it's like a lottery. It's like, right, did you win? Mm-hmm. Did you like, did you, did you hit it big? Yeah. Or did you strike out? Yeah. And that's kind of how it was last time I checked cameras. I like one camera freaking wasn't nothing on, not even a squirrel. Next camera, it was just a couple of ba- or a bachelor group of bucks. That's on. exactly how mine was. I checked the first one and had all kinds of bucks on it. Checked the second one and I had one doe twice and a coyote. Mm. So one thing I think that we've, uh, one mistake that I think that at least I've made and, and maybe all of us have made a little bit is the aspect of, in some of these spots, which there's really no other way to do it, but some of these spots, I feel like we jumped right into the middle of everything uh, before we kind of worked our way in like Josh talks about, um, which is why I put the camera where I did. I'm excited about that spot where I put the camera out yesterday because I can go in there and I can I can check that camera any time of the day and I'm not going to – any time of the day or night, I'm not going to bump a deer unless it's standing in front of the camera – I mean, I can park on the side of the road, walk five steps into these little thick pines, and pull my camera like whenever I want. I'm actually going to go in there and hang it high in the tree because I'm a little nervous about it. Also, but also, you can backtrack the deer from that spot. Exactly. <clears throat> so there's a real nice defined trail, nice edges. I think it'll be very easy to backtrack them. But before I go bombing down into that stuff, I want to know what's there before I commit all that time and energy and before I... I run down in there and possibly, you know, screw up some kind of pattern and then maybe never get the deer on camera because of something I disturbed. I mean, that's kind of my thought process is like before I invest the time, because all of our scouting has been after work, you know, for the most part on weekends, we're doing something else. Um, usually crappie fishing. That's why I'm going to be doing. Tomorrow. Yeah, they're doing, I hate you. I believe it's, <laughs> hey, you're going to go to South Carolina, load up a truck. I am yeah, in the water. I'm helping a buddy move. I'm a good friend. <laughs> Anyways. But something like that, you know, we're we're scouting mostly on weekdays after work. We got about two hours or so after work before dark, two to three hours. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't really like spending that time bombing off into a new area when I don't know what's there, unless it's some of these areas we've had history with. So I don't know. I'm going to try and put a bunch of cameras right next to roads and spots where we can just check them real easy like that. Because hmm. we've already got... We've already got bucks, we talked about this last week, I'm pretty sure, but we've already got bucks located in the spots where we really expected to locate bucks, and it's like, okay, yep, they're still there, and now I feel like we need to go find more. Yeah, when you go put some out where you had the real big deer last year that you filmed while scouting. Oh, 
Man. That's where you need to put about 10 cameras. Yes, definitely. He's in a tricky spot. Too. Well, see, that's why we spot. need 60 total. <laughs> yes. So start investing, bud. Yeah, or there we go. Some camera company, well, other than the one I talked about last week, hit us up. Anybody but Stealth Cam. <laughs> Just All right. saying. All right, there goes that opportunity. Well, I mean, would you really want them to give you 20 free cameras if you can't tell? Not if it's the same camera I got. That's No, thank you. It's yeah. like a fish finder. <laughs> that's, that's the best. I, I said that on the Running Gun page. I was like, man, it is like no joke. If you've ever seen the um, – if you've ever seen that Garm – I think it's Garmin um, Live Scope Fish Finder. Mm-hmm. That's what the freaking video looked like, the night video looked like on that camera. Not good. Terrible. Not good at all. But anyway – um, I'm trying to think. What else do we got going on? I know Michael's planning on trying to kill a deer off the ground this year with a with a trad bow, yeah, his longbow, and that's one thing we were talking about. Uh, I'd love to do that. I want to go to Eastern Arkansas try that out. What are you looking at? Steve just texted me. Man, come on now. <laughs> Listen, making history. Um, and I'm trying. Man, what else? There was. Oh. So the new, well, I don't know if I want to talk about it. What we were talking about the group text message about uh, regs. No. No. Okay, cool. Alabama, parts of Alabama are opening up early this year, which we're real excited about. We're very excited about, for sure. Yeah, that's all I'm going to say about it. (laughs) I'm not going to say, crap, Well, see, See, now with that opportunity, it makes me – I am torn right now whether or not I want to buy my Tennessee license again this year, like the whole season license. Because, mm-hmm. like, the one reason I did it last year is because the opportunity to be able to go up there in October, like early October, and, yeah. and hunt, you know, bucks and get on bucks early in the season, which which I did, which we did, me and Jacob Emery. And it's like now that Alabama, there's parts of Alabama opening up in October 1st, I'm like, you know what? You know, hey. Yeah, man. I'm talking about a long season. Holy I'll tell you crap. what, if you're if you live in Alabama – and you want to extend your season, which, sorry, Georgia, but you should buy a Georgia license. For real. It's crazy, man. Uh, it is so worth the money. Like, when I was living in Auburn, paid like, it's like 325 for a non-resident license. And on that license, it's good for 365 days. So you buy it on opening day, you can hunt, you know, all the way up until that same day next year. So, like, I bought mine, actually... I won't get to hunt on it this year, but like Michael bought his uh, two years ago. He bought it like October 1st, and Georgia usually opens early September. Uh, and so the following year, he got to hunt like the first two weeks of season on that same license. So, I mean, it's all, and you get, I can't remember what their limits are, like two bucks, I think, maybe three bucks. But then you got bonus bucks if you're you willing. Got, you got bonus bucks. You can hunt freaking bears with it. Uh, you got turkeys. I mean, dude, it's so, it is so worth the money. It's not even funny. Uh, if if we weren't going to Wyoming this year, I'd definitely buy a Georgia license and make a tripper. I mean, except I mean, we don't open until you know around here October fifteenth. So I mean, you've got over a full month of deer hunting, extra bow hunting that you can get in on, and then also you got almost a month of uh, extra turkey hunting as well. Let me ask you: Do you think that gets having that? a little bit more time before like season here comes in to be able to hunt helps you kind of get dialed in a little bit better for when season yes, comes in. Yes. A hundred percent. And that's how I'm viewing this early, these early Alabama openers as well, man. I mean, you get out there and there's, there's some freaking kinks to work out. You know, we haven't deer hunted since February, so there's going to be some issues, you know, whether it's new gear, 
whether it's whatever, you know, we're going to get out there and we're going to have issues. The lack of having a rangefinder. Who? Not me. (laughs) Uh, But, yeah, I mean, it's just it helps to have that extra time. So, Yeah, no, I I think so, too. I mean, that's one thing. Hunting Tennessee early season last year, like late late September when season comes in, by the time Alabama started, I was like, man, I'm, I, I'm got it. You know, and I mean, you hunted Georgia early season last year too. So it's like, by the time our season, season comes running. in, it's like, yeah, you're just, you already know what you're looking for. You've already been seeing, you know, good feeds on other places. You kind of yeah. know what to be focusing on. Um, and just rock and roll. You and got pl- your gear worked out. And, and also we get the opportunity to be able to kill a deer before our season comes in here and kind of work out any kinks you might have, you know, with, you know, shot opportunities yeah. and stuff like that. Well, my, my thing is like, Early season is like, if I can help it, I'm gonna stack some deer up early season. I'm gonna try to like all those poor spikes. Better watch out. Yeah, I'll I'll kill some does. I probably wouldn't shoot, or I haven't in the past. I haven't shot like yeah. a little buck early season. I'll yeah. shoot a I'll shoot a little buck. You know, when it starts getting around Thanksgiving, uh, I'll smoke a deer, anything legal. Because again, I'm meat first. Uh, you know, everyone wants to kill a big buck, but you know, I'm not gonna go without deer meat because I want a big buck. So. But if early season, if I can go out there and I can kill a, just even just a deer and get me started, break the ice, man, I hunt so much better after that. Yep. It's like turkey season this year is the same exact way. Like my second turkey hunt of the year, I killed a turkey. And then from then on, it was like, bam, bam, bam. I yeah. mean, I was on turkeys every hunt. The pressure's off. You've done it. You're confident. Uh, it's just, it's huge, I think, for me at least, to get that kill right off the bat yeah hunting with confidence is such a big thing um that was like our theme last year yeah yeah exactly it's like hunting with confidence and don't set up in a spot that you're not confident in. and once you have success you kill you know a buck or doe early season you know what worked that time and you can kind of keep mapping that out until yeah. you know that pattern fades away mm-hmm. whether it's early for early season food sources water sources tr- just travel quarters whatever that you're hunting um but you kind of figure out, okay, that worked for me there, and you hunt more with confidence. Like, once you start killing deer, uh, especially early season, you have more confidence throughout the rest of the season of what you're doing. Uh, or if you screw up, you still got time to be able to kind of make stuff happen. So if you find, like, a buck early season, you just can't make it happen, then you can kind of have a game plan for later on in the season, maybe, you know, once rut hits or even post a rut. Uh, oh, yeah. Which is – which, again, I love. That's one thing I love about down here in the southeast is you have so much opportunity to be able to kill a deer early – kill them during the rut and then kill them very late into the season mm-hmm. uh, it's not like some states that you know go out you know january 1st yeah um you know tennessee's like that tennessee pre- if you're hunting public land pretty much you're not hunting after the first mm-hmm. um so you know being down here like in alabama where you know we're going to february 10th yep i mean holy cow you know you rut, rut in some places is early you know early december in some places it's freaking you know that first week of February, mm-hmm. and it's like you just have so much opportunity to be able to go wherever you want, which goes into uh, a podcast that we're gonna do a little bit later on. I've got a guy lined up, actually two guys lined up that uh, made a trip over here from Georgia. I think they're listening. I think yeah, they're listeners of the show because uh, they got the idea from the show because we kept talking about like all oh, you non-residents need to come over here to Alabama oh, and extend your I know, season. I know who you're talking and, about. Yeah, and they did that. Um, I think it was in January. It was after Georgia went out, or yeah, yeah. Anyways, they came over and do they cleaned up like yeah, in three they days. They killed like Big three time. bucks or four bucks, something like that. Um, so anyways, it's gonna be really kind of cool to maybe get their perspective on you know extending their seasons because Alabama is a great state to do that in. Arkansas too. Now listen, 
Some of the people from Arkansas know I not like it. And I'm sure we got <laughs> a little bit more Arkansas listeners after uh, Jonathan's episode last week. Um, <laughs> but Arkansas has a stupid long season. So they go to the end of the month of February. Archery. Okay. Starts in September. Like September 26th, I think, this year. Now, you know, you're killing deer that, you know, you're killing bucks that have dropped antlers by then. Yeah. In a lot of spots. But if you're just wanting to try to stack some does and double check it's, you know, hopefully it's close enough you can double check and see if it's a shed buck or not. Yeah. Um, you can kill the crap out of some deer. Now, over there, I think it's, uh, for the most part, from last time I was hunting over there, I think it's two bucks and four does, or you can have any combination of does, uh, you know, with a buck or two, whatever. Anyways, so you can't kill nearly as many deer down here where you can kill a doe a day, you know, depending on where you're hunting and what you're hunting. Oh, yeah. Um, but there's a lot of opportunities. I yeah. This part of the country is awesome. But then again, kind of like what you heard from uh, Ben, you know, that's one thing he didn't like about the South is, you know, how long some of the gun seasons are, how liberal the bag limits are. You know, when you go out West and it's a one buck state, you know, yep. and a couple of does you can kill, there's a lot more deer and there's a lot more older deer. So definitely. You know, yeah. It's like quality over quantity, what you want. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or you go like Michael Perry and you're like, okay, I want both. And he goes up yeah. and kills the deer. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Big no deer kidding. In North Alabama. So. Yeah, man. Well, um, other than that, I'm ready to go shoot some pigs later this month. Beautiful. 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 Yeah. yeah. You want to go shoot some pigs? Yeah. You want to rifle hunt them or bow hunt them? What do you think? Whatever I can get away with. If we can, if we can shoot them with a bow, that's awesome. If we need to take the rifles and take the pit, no, I'd love to kill one. Yeah. You know, I'd love to kill one with the pistol. Get some redemption. I might, I might be able to snag a uh, private land hog hunt i know some people we might be able to that go would with. be fantastic. or if anybody's listening lives in the recent you know um reasonably reasonably close proximity to birmingham and you have a property loaded with hogs and you don't mind us coming to hunt it that'd be great <laughs> we'd appreciate it no that would be awesome even but even if you gotta make a trip i don't mind making a trip on a weekend to go try yeah that. yeah it'd be it'd be pretty fun but if not there's some public land around here that we can definitely definitely clean up on so I'm excited. I I definitely want to try my archery setup. I, my plan for the public land hunt, um, which is probably what we're going to do regardless, um, is go down, and the first time I go down, go with the rifle, do like a little bit of still hunting and everything, and then if we find something worthwhile, then when I come back using the bow, when I've you know kind of got my wits about me and I kind of know where they're at, because when I'm stalking through there looking for them, you know, I want to be able to just shoot one if I see it. So I'm gonna bring the rifle. But yeah, that's uh, that's what I got. You got anything else? Nope. Appreciate everybody listening. I'll say this one Uh-oh. one update about uh, the maps I've been making. Mm-hmm. Thanks everyone for your patience. Who's <laughs> uh, messaged me? We G- got Geo Hunt. Very overwhelmed with people who messaged. So I got my wife answering messages now. Uh, if you want a map, you can go to the Geo Hunt Facebook page. Um, we'll make a Really, whatever kind of map you want. We got a couple new reviews. A couple uh, new reviews. So, uh, so again, we appreciate everybody listening to the show. Uh, we really do. I know, um, you know, we're reaching some newer audience, which we're, we're happy with. I hope you all are enjoying the show, especially some of the newer listeners. Um, again, we always recommend check out some of our episodes from last fall. There's some really good stuff that I think you'll really enjoy. But uh, we also really appreciate some of these reviews that are coming in, especially on iTunes. And we're trying to read some new ones off every week because uh, we're getting new ones every week, which is really awesome. Yeah, it's we, really we, awesome. We appreciate those. Greatly um, appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, but if you enjoy the show, the biggest thing you can do for real is to share it with a buddy. 
Just tell them, hey, this is something you ought to check out, especially whether they're hunting public or private land. You know, maybe it makes a difference for them, a difference for them, uh, and be you know someone like we had uh, last season where we just have all these success stories coming in from people that used tactics from different episodes and different guests and went out there and, and killed really good bucks doing that. Um, yeah, man. So maybe you can impact someone's life by sharing the uh, – or impact someone's season, maybe not their life. <laughs> impact their season. Let's, let's not take too much credit. Let's <laughs> impact their season uh, by sharing the show with them. But uh, also we appreciate everybody leaving reviews for us, which Andrew's got one or two. He's going to read off. All right, five stars. Best hunting podcast in the South. First, these guys are passionate about hunting. And you can tell that they are putting time in in the field. Second, they are gifted at getting the best guys, best out of the guys they interview. They are interviewing under the radar old school killers and asking questions that pull out gems of hunting knowledge in the South. Interviewing is a skill. A lot of platforms are about promoting yourself. These guys are digging deep for Southern hunting gold. By oh, Chad Granger, Chad, we ought to get together sometime, buddy. Um, appreciate that. Uh, let's see another one five stars best podcast related to southern hunting i look forward to every monday when i get my new meat eater and southern outdoorsman episodes by dixie drifter that's that's a good combination that's a good combo man i do the same thing (laughs) i know i don't listen to many hunting podcasts anymore but i'd listen to meat eater for sure i don't listen to many podcasts anymore i'll listen to podcasts all the time i don't listen to music I mean, I listen to some, but... I listen to, I listen to Rick and Bubba until Jeez. 10 o'clock, and then I don't listen to anything throughout the day. That's terrible. Just listen. Just nah, man, I love me some Rick and Bubba. Rotate between... Uh, I started getting back into Wired to Hunt. I haven't listened to him in like two years. Uh, Mark Kenyon. And, uh, I'll cherry pick his. If he's got something that piques my interest, I'll listen yeah, to it. No, I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, but uh, listen to Meat Eater. And also, I'll tell you one I've been listening to a little bit more, just because he's entertaining, mm-hmm. is... Uh, Oh goodness! And I always Randy Newberg, oh Hunt yeah, talk radio. You know he's just a funny guy. He really is. We've, oh, had, we've, we've had him on the show. Uh, God, I don't know what episode that was. Like it was like forty three or forty. Yeah, because it was when we did the uh, Western series. Yeah. Um, but anyways, he's he's real funny. He does some really interesting conversations. Not necessarily like hunting tactics. A lot of it. Some of this is you know really interesting interviews. Um, and then dude, it's it's hard to beat a lot of episodes from Joe Rogan. I mean, when it comes to this entertainment, dude, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's hard to hard to beat it. Uh, but, yeah. But, anyways, long story short, we appreciate all the new listeners. We appreciate everyone that's been listening for quite a while. And just share it with a buddy. Um, and until next time, y'all have a great rest of week, and we'll see you back on Monday. Y'all go ahead and write down the dates, June 28th through June the 30th. Go ahead and just mark those off your calendar so you can be at the Dalton Convention Center in Dalton, Georgia for the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard a a ton of content from that expo last year that we posted. Uh, We talked about it a ton. Look, if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast, this show was literally made for you. It was literally designed for you, which means you're going to love it. You know, all the best companies in mobile hunting are going to be there. A lot of the best deer killers in the Southeast are going to be there. A lot of our past podcast guests are going to be there. It's just, it's going to be an incredible event. And hey, if you've been looking to either get into a saddle or maybe a mobile lock-on setup or just a different kind of tree stand setup, I'm telling you, it's worth the investment to go to this show because they're all going to be there and you, you will get to try all of them in person before you buy it. So you don't have to order something online and then wait for it and then try it when it comes in to see if you really like it, you're going to get to go put your hands on everything all in one day, test it all out and figure out exactly what works best for you and have it taken care of before deer season starts. So like I said, go ahead and put it on your calendar, guys. It's a no brainer. You got to be at the show.
Again, it's Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. We absolutely cannot wait to meet you guys there and talk hunting. So we'll see you at the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo in Dalton, Georgia.